This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone, good evening. Uh, my name is James Runcy. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and this special event sponsored by our good friends Bailey Gifford. Uh, like most events, this will last an hour. I'm going to ask a few questions. Hillary is then going to read. I'll ask a few more and then it'll be your turn. And after that, next door in the signing tent, there'll be an opportunity to get a signed copy of Bring Up the Bodies, Hillary's latest novel, A Precious Holy Treasure or Sacred Relic in the Age of Kindle. LAUGHTER uh, the publishers have asked me to say one thing about this because first editions of both Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies are now collector's items and are considered solid investments, almost as solid as an investment in Bailey Gifford, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so that they're limiting uh, the signings of two books, uh, two books each. Otherwise, um, Hillary will be here all night. I hope you understand. Popular, however, and international success has been a comparatively recent development because for most of her career, Hilary Mantel has been the writer's writer. Since the publication of Every Day's Mother's Day in 1985, she's been a best-kept secret, shared amongst people who could not believe that she was more widely known, not more widely known. Indeed, when Wolf Hall was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, she was described in many newspapers as 57-year-old Hilary Mantel from Glossop in Derbyshire. <laughs> as if she was a housewife who'd done a bit of writing while waiting for the marmalade to set. <laughs> you can't imagine, really, can you, a male writer being described in the same way, 64-year-old Ian McEwan from Aldershot. <laughs> In many ways, I think Hillary is three different novelists. The writer of contemporary British fiction that became so dark, she even called one of them Beyond Black, to prove how far she should go. Politicised novel about the expatriate experience abroad in Botswana and Saudi Arabia. And the historical novelist who covered the French Revolution in her magisterial book, A Place of Greater Safety. And now the trilogy of novels about Thomas Cromwell in the Tudor period, beginning with Wolf Hall, continuing with this one, Bring Up the Bodies, and concluding, we're not quite sure when, but we hope soon, with The Mirror and the Light. We're going to concentrate this evening on Bring Up the Bodies, but we're also going to talk about what it means to be a writer, Hillary's working methods, and how stories come to be told, including her own. It's a complete privilege to introduce her. Please welcome Hilary Mantel. Now, Hilary, in your memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, you say that your original intention, your original first ambition in life, was not to be a writer at all. No. Um, Fifty-odd years ago, in Glossop, Derbyshire, <laughs> I, I made up my mind that when I grew up, I would be a knight of the round table. Uh, and I was very keen on learning to joust, very keen on justice, on glory, uh, on avenging the weak, uh, all, you know, all those glorious activities that knight errants go into, uh, in for, uh, and, you know, until I was four years old, I thought that I would change into a boy, and it was the saddest day of my life. 
when I found out that this would not be true and that it might be a disadvantage in the knight errant game. But something of it stayed with me and I suppose it was inevitable that in the course of time I'd write a book about Camelot because, you know, that's what Henry's court is. Uh, you have originally the beautiful, the noble, the athletic young king. Um, you have the wonderful gentlemen who are both soldiers and heroes, and they're also poets. And you have the beautiful, unobtainable, pure women. But, you know, by the time I've got to the 1530s, the knights, the bold and beautiful young men, the knights are looking a bit shabby. Uh, middle age has caught up with them. They're beginning to limp a bit and go grey and get a bit cynical and world-weary. And the women have proved to be all too attainable very often. And, and yet, this is not to traduce or betray the Camelot legend because one of the things I understood very early in life is that the stories of King Arthur contain the seeds of betrayal um, and, and death and disaster. And that is, it's not a perversion of the stories, it's part of the stories. And so it was with Henry's life. And jousting, in a way, the perfect gentle knight, is in many ways a metaphor for writing. The, you have an old knight who advises, don't swerve at the last minute to feed your fear. It feels like the act of writing, the act of jousting. Yes, he says that you, you will always try at the last minute to swerve, or if not to swerve, you will close your eyes. And that's the very thing a writer has got not to do. It's so easy to settle for what's safe and within your capability. But I think you have to be all the time working at the very edge of your competence. And if necessary, that means that as an artist, you dash headlong into danger. You always take on an opponent or a project that you think is a bit too big for you. Otherwise, what would be the point of polishing your armour and getting on your horse? <laughs> Now, uh, you were brought up as a, as a Catholic, and were it not for Henry VIII, this would still be a Catholic country. How did that influence you? I'm thinking about two particular things, your moral judgment. Uh, I think you got into trouble as a child for telling the truth rather than telling lies, and your imagination. I took my religion very, very seriously and I tried my hardest to be good and I spent a lot of time examining my conscience as little Catholics do. It makes for a kind of self-awareness that you never lose the habit of self-scrutiny, the habit of listening to your own heart, which is where, after all, a lot of art originates. It's not, you know, a novel's not written from the top of your head. It's written from your heart and your gut. Um, and I think as well, as I've said before, that Catholicism 
If you're trained up in it when you were very young, you know by the age of four that there is another world beyond this world and that it's that world that's the important one. Not the evidence of your senses, but this abstracted world of ethereal beings that, that is the ultimate reality. So, before you know the alphabet, you're thinking on a metaphysical plane. And then, of course, that's what writers do. It's what novelists do. Uh, they spend their whole time creating worlds that actually don't exist, people who don't exist, and are yet, to them, more important, more vital, and more real than the world about them. And this novel starts uh, with seeing another world or seeing the reincarnation of children as Vulcans or imagined as Vulcans. It is about the, the, the characters in this novel do all believe firmly in another world as well as this one. I wonder yes. what attracted you to what, I mean, given the fact that writing a novel is such a big undertaking and you didn't know presumably it was going to be three, presumably you thought it was no, going to be I didn't. one. Um, mm. What drew you to this particular subject and particularly Thomas Cromwell? Yes, I think it was Cromwell. It wasn't that I thought I'd like to write a novel about Henry VIII's court. It wasn't that I thought, Henry, he's a banker. <laughs> he's a surefire bestseller. I wouldn't have been wrong. But it actually, it was Thomas Cromwell because I'm just fascinated by the trajectory of that story, starting off as a blacksmith's son, rising to be Earl of Essex, at Henry's right-hand man and minister of everything in this extremely hierarchical society, cutting through all the social layers, breaking all the rules and making your own rules. And you have to ask yourself, how did he do that? And what was it like to be so close to Henry to put your head in the lion's mouth every day? What kind of personality structure can sustain that? Uh, and how does one sustain such a high-risk life, uh, such a high-risk career? Because if you were a politician in Henry's reign and things went wrong for you, you didn't get to resign and spend more time with your family. <laughs> um, you got your head cut off. Uh, as, as, and I think that the risks of this happening must have been present to Cromwell every morning when he woke up. So I, I, I'm fascinated by the strength of a personality that can sustain that high wire act for almost a decade. And how advantageous is it to you that he's an outsider, he's a blacksmith's son, he's outside um, the hierarchy of class, that you're able to use him as that kind of outsider? Well, you see, we people from Glossop naturally identify <laughs> with such a man. Um, it's, it's wonderful because his skills, his knowledge, his mindset are rather different from those of most of Henry's courtiers and servants. So he is able to stand back from the typical mores of the time and occasionally, as it were, conspire with the reader over the heads of um, the, the 
chivalrous idiots he has to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, he's a man who was revolutionary in his thinking. And the implications of some of his thinking were not understood by his contemporaries at all, but are more readily understandable in, 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 to, to the, the present day, to the modern reader. Well, um, we're going to do the reading. Yes. Um, we, uh, to give you an idea of, I, I know I'm assuming that a lot of you have read this book, but uh, you haven't, heard, presumably you haven't heard Hillary read from it. Um, and the idea of uh, Cromwell as an observer, as an outsider of Henry, and possibly the beginning of the end of Anne Boleyn, is, uh, is almost described as if it might be a film. It's observed as a film. But Hillary's going to introduce this uh, short reading um, about Henry and uh, Jane Seymour. We're in September 1535, and Henry has been on his summer holidays. He departed the day of Thomas More's execution. Uh, it's been a wet summer. Um, things are brightening up a little as the progress draws to its close. They come to Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, which is the home of the Seymour family. Now, here's a big question. How did Henry and Jane Seymour ever get together? Well, of course, if you're a romantic novelist, he happened to be riding through the forest, <laughs> called at Wolf Hall, saw the beauteous daughter of the house, and swept her off her feet, despite the fact that he was married to someone else at the time. If you are a historian, that's nonsense, because he'd known Jane Seymour for years. And how he suddenly turns out to be in love with her is a question historians cannot answer. For God help us, they're serious people. They're not here to answer that sort of question. Even though this is not Hello magazine. <laughs> so my job is to look for what's good in both these versions. And somehow makes sense on a human level of what's happening. It's true Henry had known Jane for years, but we all know for our, from our own lives, our own experience, that you can know someone, you can have been seeing them every day, but then comes the day when you look at them in a new light, with new eyes, and everything changes. And that, I suppose, is what happened at Wolf Hall. And he, of course, is Thomas Cromwell. Next day, so as not to tire the ladies, the hunting party cut short the day's sport and return early to Wolf Hall. For him, it's a chance to put off his riding clothes and get among the dispatchers. He hopes that the king will sit for an hour and listen to what he needs to tell him. But Henry says... Lady Jane, will you walk in the garden with me? She's at once on her feet, but frowning, as if trying to make sense of it. Her lips move. She all but repeats his words. Walk, Jane, in the garden. Oh, yes, of course, honoured. Her hand, a petal, hovers above his sleeve, and then it descends and flesh grazes embroidery. The three gardens at Wolf Hall, and they call them the Great Paled Garden, 
the old lady's garden and the young lady's garden. When he asks who they were, no one remembers. The old lady and the young lady are buried long ago. No difference between them now. He reads. He writes. Something tugs at his attention. He gets up and glances down from the window at the walks below. The panes are small and there's a wobble in the glass, so he has to crane his neck to get a proper view. He thinks, I could send my glaciers down, help the Seymours get a clearer idea of the world. Henry and Jane are walking below. Henry's a massive figure and Jane is like a little jointed puppet, her head not up to the king's shoulders. A broad man, a high man, Henry dominates any room. He would do it even if God had not given him the gift of kingship. Now Jane's behind a bush. Henry is nodding at her. He's speaking at her. He is impressing something on her. And he, Cromwell, watches, scratching his chin. Is the king's head becoming bigger? Is that possible in midlife? Hans Holbein will have noticed, he thinks. I'll ask him when I get back to London. More likely I'm under a mistake. Possibly it's just the glass. Clouds are coming up. A heavy raindrop hits the panes. He blinks. The drop spreads, widens, trickles against the glazing bars. Jane bobs out into his sight line. Henry has her hand clasped firmly on his arm, trapping it with his other hand, and he can see the king's mouth still moving. He resumes his seat. He reads that the builders working on the fortifications in Calais have down tools and are demanding sixpence a day. That his new green velvet coat is coming down to Wiltshire by the next courier. That a Medici cardinal has been poisoned by his own brother. He yawns. He reads that hoarders on the Isle of Thanet are driving up the price of grain. Personally, he'd hang hoarders but the chief of them might be some little lordling who's promoting famine for fat profit, so you have to tread carefully. Two years ago at Southwark, seven Londoners were crushed to death in fighting for a dole of bread. It's a shame to England that the king's subjects should starve. He takes up his pen and makes a note. Very soon, it's not a big house, you can hear everything. He hears a door below and the king's voice, and a soft hum of solicitation around him. Wet feet, majesty. He hears Henry's heavy tread approaching, but it seems Jane has melted away without a sound. No doubt her mother and her sisters have swept her aside to hear all the king said to her. As Henry comes in behind him, he pushes back his chair to rise. Henry waves a hand, carry on. Majesty, he says, the Muscovites have taken 300 miles of Polish territory. They say 50,000 men are dead. Oh, Henry says. I hope they spare the libraries, he says, the scholars. There are very fine scholars in Poland. Hmm, says the king. Oh, yeah, I hope so too. He returns to his dispatches. Plague in town and city. Letters from foreign rulers, wishing to know if it is true that Henry is planning to cut off the heads of all his bishops. 
Certainly not, he notes. We have excellent bishops now, all of them conformable to the king's wishes, all of them recognising him as head of the church in England. And besides, what an uncivil question. How dare they imply that the king of England should account to him for himself to any foreign power? How dare they impugn his sovereign judgment? Bishop Fisher's dead, it's true, and Thomas More, but Henry's treatment of them before he, they drove him to an extremity was mild to a fault. If they had not evinced a traitorous stubbornness, they'd be alive now, alive like you and me. He's written a lot of these letters since July. It doesn't sound wholly convincing, even to himself. He finds himself uh, repeating the same points rather than advancing the argument into new territory. Needs new phrases. Henry stumps about behind him. Majesty, he says, the imperial ambassador asks, may he ride up country to visit your daughter, Lady Mary? No, Henry says. He writes to the ambassador, wait, just wait till I'm back in London and all will be arranged. No word from the king, just breathing, pacing, a creak from a cupboard where he rests and leans on it. Majesty, he says, I hear the Lord Mayor of London scarcely leaves his house. He's so afflicted by migraine. Henry says. They're bleeding him. Is that what your majesty would advise? A pause. Henry focuses on him with some effort. Bleeding him. I'm sorry, for what? Now this is strange. Henry always enjoys hearing of other people's minor ailments. Admit to a sniffle or a colic and he will make up a herbal potion with his own hands and stand over you while you swallow it. He puts down his pen, turns to look his monarch in the face. It's clear that Henry's mind is back in the garden. The king is wearing an expression he has seen before, though on beast rather than man. He looks stunned like a veal calf knocked on the head by the butcher. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, um, we're going to do a tiny little bit of what, uh, in English degree, they call Pratt Crit on the, that little section. Um, of course, the letters uh, Cromwell are, is reading are real, aren't they? You've, you've read those letters, you've looked at those letters. So how much, when you're starting to write that scene, um, how much fun can you have with the current world of Cromwell at that time and how you research that? Well, it, it's actually wonderful. Those are all the letters that crossed his desk the week he was at Wolf Hall. So... Just the selected detail, you know, gives you so much information about the Tudor world. Um, not just the, um, the wide world out there, what's going on in Europe, 
you know, 50,000 men are dead. But of course, we're all really concerned with ourselves. So he quickly forgets the polls and, oh God, my, my coat's coming down by the next courier. Um, and, you know, the inf I, it's just wonderful about Henry and the ailments because he was a man who would cut off your head, but previous to that would be most solicitous if you had a cold and would, as I described, make up a potion for you. So what I'm trying to get is the big picture and the very minute and particular picture. And you simply cannot do that by inventing it as well as you can do by reading those actual letters and imagining how a man's mind might flit between the grand and the trivial, all in the course of five minutes. As people do. And are, the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is the wobble in the glass. Is that you're kind of looking at history through a wobble in the glass and you're choosing that viewpoint and you are almost imagining that scene as if you are directing it as a film. Yes, and, and, you know, if this were a romantic novel, the viewpoint would be different. We would be down there in the garden with the principal persons, with Henry and Jane, and we would have access to their feelings. Probably we would be centering on Jane's, and we would know all about them. We'd be down there in the garden with a perfect view and perfect knowledge. But actually, history is more like the process I described there. People are in your sight line one minute and then they bob out of it. And there's the wobble in the glass and you have to change your position to try to follow them. And I suppose very early in the book, I am telling the reader, this is how it will be. Everything that follows will be ambiguous. Uh, it will sometimes be hazy in the extreme. And in order to make sense of it, we will sometimes have to shift our position. And then, of course, the big question, is Henry's head getting bigger? Um, some people trace a huge change in Henry's character to this year, 1536. I don't entirely go along with it. Um, but it is certainly true that later, as the book will lead you into these incidents, he comes, uh, he has a terrible fall in the tilt yard, perils of jousting. They think he's dead. He wakes up after 10 minutes or two hours, depending which version you believe. He's never quite the same again. So you can make a case for it. You can, and um, that's the subject for historians. I want to just keep concentrating on you as a novelist because um, it's quite interesting that a lot of people would write historical novels, particularly maybe about this period. And one of the things, showing off their research and using slightly unconvincing dialogue, perhaps. But you avoid these in what the New Yorkers called a modern novel filled with suspenseful risk. And it feels very, very modern. Was that your intention, to write a modern novel that just happens to be set in the 16th century? Well, because I happen to be set in the 21st century, no other mode is really available to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I 
think that what I try to do is to write as I would in any other novel, so that it has a literary quality, I, I hoped, as well as a his, historical quality. I, I notice that in historical novels, even very good historical novels, characterization is often quite two-dimensional because it's a big ask, you know, to give the reader all the background information, all the foreground information, and make the characters properly as well. But I do not see why you should have to compromise. And I think in writing a historical novel, you use all the tricks you have learned on diverse subject matter, and you bring to it all, all the craft you brought to novels of contemporary life, but then there's an extra dimension as well. You have an extra layer. But yes. what, what interests me is the modern device. Uh, for example, you're very dexterous with this. I just uh, The first sentence, his children are falling from the sky, he watches from horseback. And then you move quite quickly into you. Already you can feel the summer. And then by the 14th paragraph, riding westward in high summer, we have dipped into sylvan chases. It's a fantastic sleight of hand that you bring the reader in from he through you to we. Are you, that's, you're very conscious of that, surely. Uh, yes, I suppose it's a way of bringing the reader into the time, into the place, breeding a sort of complicity, putting you into Henry's entourage. Because the essence of the thing is, not to judge with hindsight, not to past judgment from the lofty perch of the 21st century, where we know what happened. It's to be there with them in that hunting party at Wolf Hall and as they ride back to London, moving forward with imperfect information, perhaps with wrong expectations, but in any case, moving into a future that from their point of view is open, not predetermined, where chance and hazard will play a terrific role. So I suppose it's my way of getting, getting my reader inducted into the world of the characters who don't know what's going to happen. It does have a vibrant modern immediacy, but when we last spoke, I suddenly realised that actually this novel is very Shakespearean. Um, and the book feels Shakespearean, not just in style, but the swing between high style, high language and vulgarity, the subject matter, the mechanics of power as a theme, and the use of archetypes. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk about the influence of Shakespeare on your life and writing. I'm thinking particularly of Julius Caesar. Yes, I came to Shakespeare very early and in a very peculiar way because uh, our, our house was a house without many books in it, but certain books did arrive there by a process that nobody ever understood. Um, old school books and Sunday school prizes, that kind of thing. And when I was about eight, I came across, I found somewhere a black, grimy, ancient-looking book called Steps to Literature, Book Five. Uh, and in it, amongst many other things, there was a, 
a piece of Shakespeare, an extract from Julius Caesar, and it was the scene in which, after Shakespeare's dead, Antony makes his speech. The crowd have been on the side of the conspirators. They've been shouting for Brutus, and Antony, by a feat of rhetoric, turns them around so that they become not a crowd but a mob, and they are now hunting for the conspirators through Rome, ready to do them in. And in my beautiful simplicity, I thought this scene was the complete works of Shakespeare, which I had heard mentioned with reverence. Uh, and in my view, it was worth every bit of applause that people gave it, because it is the most fantastic scene. The way things spin, the way that a complete transformation takes place in the mood of everyone involved. And when I think of it, you see, I found my way to the complete works, the real complete works at 10, and never looked back. But everything I've done, or most of the things I've done in the novel, are somehow wrapped into that scene. I've been concerned with revolution, with persuasion, with rhetoric, with um, the point where a crowd turns into a mob. And in a larger sense, the moment when one thing turns into another, whether it's a ghost into a solid person, or something, or a riot into a revolution, Everything, it seems to me, is in that scene, and it is intensely political. And I think that all my, my novels, to a greater or lesser degree, are political. And this, most of all, even though it does happen to be the politics of 400 years ago, they are no less sharp and interesting and valid. I'm worried about survival and how they play situations. Yes, indeed. And worried about the next transformation. Yes, and as I said earlier, uh, at Henry's court, the stakes are so high. So I think what you are doing is, in a novel like this, you're examining the political process through creating a theatre of conflict into which you put your characters. It's like a cockpit. You put them in there, let them show their nature, let them do their best, let them do their worst. But it's, for Cromwell, you know, every day is a crisis. There are no safe days. There is no downtime. And so in every scene, even the quiet ones, I try to create turning points, multiple turning points, so that the reader knows how it's going to come out, but the reader's expectation of how and why is constantly challenged. I, I find that the um, prose with which you describe this very, very dense, and it has an incredible rigor to it. And just before we move on about uh, to, to ideas of transformation again and the idea of history in the book. I just wanted to ask you about language and I, I just feel that this has enormous strength. So here's an example, for example. Here's an example of Hilary Mantel. All our labours are sophistry, all our learning, both acquired or pretended. The stratagems of state, the lawyer's decrees, the churchman's curses, and the grave resolution of judges, sacred and secular, all and each can be defeated by a woman's body. 
and here's Hamlet. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office? Uh, it's almost a run-on. How much has Shakespeare's language, do you think, influenced the way you couch those scenes? Well, it's interesting because, you know, Thomas Cromwell's cook doesn't talk like that. That's, that's Thomas Risley, um, a young man who has studied rhetoric and when he was at Cambridge University uh, was a great actor in student plays. So it's a pleasure to have characters on the page uh, who have some eloquence, some sweep about their language, but you can do just as much with the low life. Um, and what happens in Cromwell's kitchen, they are some of my favourite scenes. But I think to come back to Shakespeare, well, I've told you how I started at the top, you see. Um, in terms of linguistic invention, in terms of depth of characterisation, there is something ahead of you all your life. The prize. Shakespeare should have written the tragical history of Thomas Cromwell. He didn't. Um, although there is an Elizabethan play called Thomas Cromwell, in which he's said to have had a hand, but it's very hard to trace. I think there is a feeling, you know, it wasn't just for me, it wasn't just Julius Caesar, it was also the history plays. They were where I moved next, and Macbeth. Nothing light, you know, like a Midsummer Night's Dream. No, no. So, you have this fantastic ideal that it's always trying to pull the best out of you. And material of this strength and interest, again, I think it brings you nearer to realising your potential as a writer. I mean, I hope I'm not there yet. I hope there's more I can do. You want to push yourself further? Yes, absolutely. Proceeding always to the point of danger and not closing your eyes at the last minute. Yes, complacency being the enemy. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the idea of resting on your laurels. You always need to be thinking more about your next project. Yes. Than about the, the, the book you've just committed to paper. There needs to be something to tow you on. Now, obviously, you have got a next project, which is the next book, the third uh, part of this uh, trilogy. Uh, now, we already know the history, so how much does historical inevitability help or hinder you? Okay, the reader knows the end, but they don't know the tortuous and convoluted ways by which we get there. And because I'm walking my reader forward with the characters then suspense still operates. There is a moment, you know, when you think Anne Boleyn walks to the scaffold and she's all the time looking over her shoulder. She thinks there's going to be a reprieve and we come down from the in that part of the book, from the days to the hours to the minutes and then the seconds. Her hope is realistic. Henry is capricious. I want the reader to feel 
that this tragedy might be interrupted at any moment and might turn into some other kind of play. It's, it's a trick, really. What you're trying to do is to hurl contingency back in, into the process by persuading your reader to become complicit with your characters and join them in their state of unblissful ignorance, if you like. Because Henry didn't know he was going to have six wives. Exactly. With each one, he was freshly hopeful. <laughs> She's the girl for me, this is it. Um, is there any sense of deja vu when you write... How do you feel when you write a scene such as the execution of Anne Boleyn, when you've already done Marie Antoinette uh, in a place of greater safety? How does that feel, thinking, I'm going to do another... Uh, by the way, sorry, I've given away the plot there. Anne Boleyn <laughs> dies. <laughs> well, I've marched lots of people to the scaffold. Um, I think... Um, it almost beheading seems to be my favourite sport, <laughs> but um, I don't think that what you've done in a previous book carries over because you, like the reader and the characters, you're walking forward. You're desperately engaged with those characters and in a state of agitation and almost panic as you write. Um, at least I think you are if you've done your job properly. It has to work on you. Um, so nothing from previous books ever helps except for the knowledge that you have gained some experience and technical competence. So when you come to a point where you think you want to throw down the rag, you know, you think, this is too complicated to explain to any reader, however intelligent and tolerant. You know, you can say to yourself, no, I've done harder things, there is a way. So experience helps you in that way. But I think that every morning you have to peel off your skin and be, and come to the process fresh and new. And that every day, just because you could write yesterday, it never means you'll be able to write today. So you have to recreate yourself, I think, every morning and pit yourself against every new task. Yes, that sounds rather terrifying. It's not well, how it's, I approach breakfast, I have to say. Hilary, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know that you're going to have to do this uh, beheading, presumably. You're going to have to do this from, uh, for Cromwell himself. And I just wondered, will there be a symmetry between the beginning of Wolf Hall, a boy on the ground, now get up, Cromwell lying there in blood, and the end? Have you set out to do a deliberate symmetry between the beginning and the end? I have, and it still holds, even though... We're now looking at three books instead of one, as I thought. Obviously, I've made all sorts of complications for myself by evolving the project in that way. But this is valid and this still holds good. And I think that when that first line came into my mind and the picture of the 15-year-old Thomas Cromwell lying on the ground in his own blood thinking that his father will kill him. He's thinking, any minute, I am going to die. 
and the voice of his father sneering at him, so now get up. I immediately realised, my mind flew to what would be the very end of the project. Cromwell's execution, we understand, uh, was not, not a quick one like Anne Boleyn's. He had plenty of time to know that he was dying. And my idea is that probably the voice that says, so now get up, is in his own ear. And with the fading of Cromwell's consciousness, the project becomes extinct. It is done. Well, I, I'm sure we can't wait. Now, uh, <laughs> blimey. Gosh, so no small talk here. Your time for questions. Um, we have some microphones, I hope. And so I'm looking this side. There's a gentleman here right at the front. And then next one over here, somebody? No, not yet. Okay, good. Oh, that was so enjoyable. I want to ask you a question just for your insight as a novelist. It may seem dry as dust and historian-like, but there was one thing unique about the English Reformation, and that is that it was enacted in Parliament, yes. not just any Parliament, a seven-year Parliament. And I have wondered for years, whose idea was that? Is it too clever for Henry? It's certainly not too clever for Cromwell. What do you think? Henry, I think, we tend to forget, was a deeply intelligent man. Cromwell, if he is the architect of the Reformation, is the architect of its legislation. I think you're quite right. He was a wonderful parliamentary manager. He worked that parliament harder than any parliament in history. Uh, and it was what Henry had for backing and ratification. Parliament wasn't always on his side. But with a little bit of pressure from Cromwell, it came over to his side in this matter. And of course, it gave him a place to stand. It's a point very well made. And I do show, at least I try to show, to take the dry subject of how it is not imposed, but how it grows through the legal process, through the legislative process, and Cromwell is, if you like, the keen gardener here. Yes, it's a point very well made. It doesn't sound dramatic. And yet, and yet it is. It, it, it's, it is incredibly important that Henry had the backing of Parliament, which in a poor way he could claim spoke for the nation. Anybody else? Or I'll just keep asking. The gentleman here. I can keep going, by the way. And there's a lady. Darling, could you get that lady at the back for the next? Yeah. Here. Uh, yes, I just want to know how yeah, much um, historical documentation is available on Cromwell, and how much did you have to invent to fill in the gaps? On Cromwell as a public servant, more documentation almost than you can pass through your hands. Uh, as a public servant, he's been well enough served by biographers, and the letters and papers of the reign 
for 10 years are virtually the letters and papers of Thomas Cromwell. Um, every letter that came in to him was kept. The letters that went out to him, of course, went all over Europe and it's a matter of chance. So on the one hand, extremely well documented. Cromwell is a private man, so ill-documented that you suspect that if he ever wrote a private letter to people, he put, read this and eat it on the end. <laughs> uh, and this is where a novelist can go to work. Um, the historian cannot get at the private man. Building on the best information I can get, I have had to invent, but not, I hope, ever gratuitously or pointlessly. Um, I think, you know, imagination is licensed to come in and fill the gaps, which in the case of the private man are extensive. But there is no public life without a corresponding private life. And the novelist must know that and be guided, and in some ways encouraged and heartened and justified by that knowledge. Thank you. Lady up there. You spoke of the, of the challenge, both as an errant knight and as a writer, of always reaching for a project that's a bit bigger than, than you think. Yes. Did you deliberately set yourself the challenge of making of a character who, in English history, has always been regarded as a hard man and an unlikable character, and turning him into a character whom we can all feel for and care about? It's policy, I suppose, not to do the easy thing. I think enough has been said about Thomas More, about the wives. Um, I suppose, in a way, it's, it's an act of rehabilitation, an act of piety. It, it's an act of re-remembering. Cromwell has been flattened in historical memory, and he's been flattened to a two-dimensional villain. And I wanted to see if I could do something a little more independent, but a little more nuanced as well. And the point of putting the reader behind Cromwell's eyes and in Cromwell's shoes is that the reader will see these difficulties, these dilemmas, these judgment calls afresh. And hopefully we'll say, well, if I were Thomas Cromwell, what would I have done? And the answer, I think, will often come, I would have done as Thomas Cromwell did. Self-preservation always born in mind. There's a gentleman over here. Um, is there anyone on this side while we're waiting? This lady here. Can you to this lady? And then I'll come over to... Sorry, Thank just... you. I'd just like to know um, how you chose the titles for the books. How? You chose the titles. The titles. Um, well, Wolf Hall, because it was the place that first novel was going to get to. We don't arrive at Wolf Hall. To, we, we don't actually arrive at Wolf Hall. Um, but Wolf Hall are the final words of the book. And I like the idea of a novel that's always in progress, never settles, till that final full stop. And bring up the bodies is simply 
one way of translating the, the writ of habeas corpus. Oh, and I accidentally, you know, I should say that, incidentally, I should say that Wolf Hall, of course, is the name of the Seymour's family house, but also everywhere Henry goes to Wolf Hall, it operates on a metaphorical level as well. Bring up the bodies is the beginning of the writ of habeas corpus. Um, in this case, sent from the Tower of London to, um, it's, it's sent by the court who will try, that will try Anne Boleyn's lovers to the Tower of London. Bring up the bodies for trial. Um, and as soon as those words, I'd written those words, they jumped off the page at me. Uh, one of those phrases that says very much more than it seems to. And the mirror and the light, it's actually it's a quotation that Thomas Cromwell, it, it's something Thomas Cromwell said, it would take me too long to put it in context. But it will, the third book, I hope, will act to shine a slightly different light on what has gone before and to hold up a series of mirrors to what has gone before so that certain events will appear to us in a different light or in a different pattern. Um, tricky things, titles, but you always want one with nuances, with resonance. Uh, so that perhaps it means one thing to the reader when they open the book, but much, much more when they close the book. So it's a journey. There's just the last question up there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Mantel, uh, in, in your development of your story, you've told us many, many things about how Thomas Cromwell developed himself, how he went to Europe and changed, did not just have adventures, but had opportunities to learn to master many, many things. I find that your own use of detail and language as you tell this is a constant reminder, Cromwell knows what he's doing and is a very constructive and careful man. He has the same missing ears as Shakespeare, of course, but anyway. Yes, yes. Um, he disappeared for England around about the age of 15. Somehow found his way to an Itali a Florentine banking house. He's the only boy who ever ran away from home in order to become a merchant banker. <laughs> <laughs> Came back speaking a handful of languages. Uh, came back in his late 20s and set himself up as a lawyer with a great deal... It made him very different from the people who normally served Henry. It gave him a much broader perspective. It opened up the world. And yes, I hope that I have been able, in a similar way, to get my reader travelling, uh, to get my, elite, my reader to speak the language of these characters and open up the world for you. This, um, this novel ends, of course, with a beginning. Um, 
they're all beginnings. Here is one. This is just the beginning of our journey into the world of Hillary. And this, this novel's like a kind of jewel uh, in which on its surface, in its facets, and in its depth, you'll find reflected crows and falcons, angels and phantoms. It's a hard, glittering jewel of a book. I'm sure we're all looking forward to the sequel. But most of all, we have to express our gratitude to the unbelievably fabulous Hilary Mantel. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.